Good evening. Good evening. Welcome to this gathering of God's people here at Charlotte Chapel. My name's Dan. I'm a member here. Uh, we gather together like this to pray together, to hear God speak to us from the Bible, and to sing praises to him. We don't serve an exhausting God. He doesn't demand strength from his people. He expects weakness, but he is never weak. He never gets tired. He never grows weary. He doesn't expect strength from us. He's not a bully, but he's a tender father. That's one of the beautiful things about our God. He uses his strength to lift us up. So let's sing today. Do stand and sing with me. Strength will rise. Thank you. 
Andy Patterson is one of our pastors here at Charlotte Chapel, and he's going to be preaching God's word to us in just a moment. Uh, But just before that, I'm going to ask him just to come up and just chat to us a little bit about what passion for life is and uh, what we're going to be doing in that. So, Andy. Dan, Um, passion for life is a national mission that's taking place 
uh, over and around Easter of this year. We're involved in that. We've got a special week running from the 10th to the 17th of April. If you've been here in the morning service, you'll be more aware of it because we've uh, mentioned it a bit there. But if you're one of those who just comes out to the evening, we wanted to make sure that you have the opportunity to be aware of what's going on. Now, there is now this uh, lovely leaflet, Find Life That Lasts, um, and these are going to be offered to you as you go out, because on the other side, they have details of all the different events that are going on. Uh, I just want to highlight uh, a few of them. So, for example, on Friday, the 8th of April, there's a sports quiz. Uh, that's been run at Edinburgh Aki's Rugby Club. And uh, we're putting together some teams. If you would like to be part of that, uh, do let us know, and we can put you in touch with those who are uh, putting some of those teams together. Uh, and then for us, our uh, week begins on Sunday the 10th. We are having a special evangelist called Michael Lotz. Michael's a great communicator of the good news of Jesus Christ. Michael will be preaching for us on Sunday morning and evening, 10.30 and 7 o'clock. And then through the week, Monday to Friday, uh, 11th to the 15th of April, we are having here in, in this part of the building an art exhibition and cafe. Um, many of our folks... Uh, here in the chapel are preparing artworks, so uh, you will find art artworks uh, sprinkled liberally around the place and in the center as well, and we would uh, suggest you might like to come and might like to bring friends with you who would be interested in artworks which are reflecting on this whole theme of passion for life. That runs from 10 till 3 every day, Monday to Friday, 10 till 3, that's the 11th to the 15th of April. Then on Tuesday evening, we're having a songs of praise here. We're going to be singing a variety of uh, songs and hymns, and there's going to be videoed interviews that we're going to be showing. And I understand there's still opportunity, if you would like to be part of the singers, the choir that's going to be taking part, then I know Gavin is here, and he would love to uh, hear from you. If you don't know who Gavin is, it doesn't matter, ask one of us and we can put you in touch with those who need to know those things. And then on Friday the 15th of April, here at Good Friday, in the evening, 7.30, as the same time for Songs of Praise, we're having Easter Praise with the band uh, playing to us and Michael Lotz preaching. A new addition to the program is that on Saturday morning at Dalmahoy Hotel and Country Club, there's going to be a breakfast at which, again, Michael Otts will be speaking. And if you would like to come, if you'd like to bring a friend with you, and really that is the condition of coming, it's not just, as it were, a gathering for Charlotte Chapel members, it's you can come if you bring a friend uh, with you. We would just ask that you pay for your breakfast, the chapel will pay for your guests' breakfast. Again, let us know, contact the church office uh, for what is going to take place those uh, couple of hours on the morning of Saturday the 16th of April. Sunday the 17th of April, Michael Otz is going to be preaching here in the morning, and then in the evening, there won't be here a service as we're having now, but rather we're all going over to Usher Hall for the special resurrection uh, event, which has been run by Origin, and uh, again, Michael is preaching at those events. So you may say, what did he say? I've forgotten those dates already. Pick up one of these. 
as you go out. If you didn't get one this morning, uh, and that will give you the information and the dates. And we want you right now to be thinking and praying about who you could invite and bring along for these special events. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Uh, one of our elders, Robert M Naismith, is now going to bring God's word to us. So if you've got a Bible, do grab that. Um, Robert. We're going to read uh, from Psalm 59, the first 10 verses. For the director of music to the tune, Do Not Destroy, of David, when Saul had sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine, Lord. I have done no wrong, yet they are ready to attack me. Arise to help me. Look on my plight. You, Lord God Almighty, you who are the God of Israel, Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Show no mercy to wicked traitors. They return at evening, snarling like dogs and prowl about the city. See what they spew from their mouths. The words from their lips are as sharp as swords and they think, who can hear us? But you laugh at them, Lord. You scoff at all those nations. You are my strength. I watch for you. You, God, are my fortress, my God, on whom I can rely. Thank you, Robert. Uh, we're going to come before the Lord in prayer. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, when we hear those words, when we read them, we think of the Lord Jesus Christ. We remember how fierce men conspired against him, even though he had done no wrong. He was crucified not because he was sinful, but because we are sinful. We confess our sins to you and our sinfulness to you now. Thank you for your steadfast love and grace towards us, Father. Thank you for demonstrating that love to us in the cross of Christ. In light of that, we bring before you the Passion for Life week, knowing that Christ came to die in the place of sinners like us, motivates us to share that good news with our neighbors. Would you cause doors of opportunity to be open to us so that we can proclaim the gospel clearly to outsiders? Father, please teach us by your spirit through your words to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, speaking gracious truth to them in love. Would you be pleased to act decisively in that week? so that sinners would join us in the kingdom of your son. Father, we thank you also that this psalm points us not only to Christ's death, but also to his resurrection. We remember how even though evil men conspired against Christ and killed him, on the third day you raised him from the dead, laughing and scoffing at Satan's attempt to overcome the kingdom of your son. Thank you that because of the resurrection and ascension of Christ, we who have faith in him have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Through him, your spirit, please continue to glorify your name through us as a church, in our thoughts, our words, and our actions. 
until the Lord Jesus returns to make all things new. In the name of Christ, amen. We're now going to sing Cornerstone, so do please stand.
Please do be seated. You know, I can just about remember the time when our kids were very young and then beginning to walk rather than crawl. It was a learning experience for all of us. Plants, vases, candles, you know how it goes, knickknacks were raised about three feet above the ground to avoid the attention of exploring fingers. And although there were a variety of commands, uh, you parents will remember them and those of you young enough will remember your parents saying it to you, but don't touch that or put that down or the great one, don't put that in your mouth. Um, and, and even despite those, there were times when we would still hear the wail of a little voice followed by faltering steps running into the arms of a parent. You see, we'd emphasize that radiators were hot in the way that parents do those things. Hot, hot, hot. But, but still, despite our best efforts, inevitably, a hand would get placed on the warm metal, only to be removed in record time, accompanied by a delayed cry. And then would come that oft-repeated parental phrase, well, that's a lesson they won't forget. And generally, after the second or third time, that was true. And today, I can proudly announce that my 39-year-old daughter and my 37-year-old son haven't burnt themselves on a radiator for several years now. You see, the point is this. We're always learning lessons. It may be as simple as hot radiators hurt. Or the lessons may be as profound as God's care never fails his people. And it's that latter lesson that David was learning throughout 1 Samuel chapter 19. And maybe you'd like to have that open before you. We haven't had it read out already because in the course of what we're doing, we're going to be going through most of the verses contained there. So it was that latter lesson of God's care never fails his people that David was learning. It was a lesson that was vital for him because David was God's anointed king. He was the one who was going to come and rule over Israel. And he was the king, God's king, who needed to be able to glorify God by trusting him in all the situations of life. You see, lessons from his past were to shape his conduct in the future. And what we find in the chapter before us are four ways that God delivers David from Saul's threat. You see, the chapter begins by setting the scene for all that's to follow. Verse 1, Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. 
And that sets the scene for what we're going to be looking at. And over the following 24 verses, we discover four ways in which God delivered David. The first occasion is this. We notice that David is saved through Jonathan's direct persuasion. David's saved through Jonathan's direct persuasion. For what we discover there in verses 1 to 7 is that Jonathan speaks directly to his father, King Saul, in defense of David. And he persuasively points out how wrong it would be to harm him. Let me read verses 4 to 7. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul and David was with Saul as before. So you see, logic and eloquence win the day. A brave friend ensures David's survival, at least for a little longer. But the old jealousies that had really ticked off Saul in the previous chapter, they are soon rekindled because David's military skills come again to the fore. Verse 8. Once more, war broke out. And David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. So the old jealousies are kindled. And what we see next is, secondly, that David is saved through his own swift reactions. David is saved through his own swift reactions. It's there in verses 9 to 10. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. Now, David's been here before. We noticed last week when we were looking at chapter 18 that Saul did something very similar because of this evil spirit that had come upon him. And we saw last week that this spirit is called evil, not because it is in itself evil, but rather it is exposing to Saul his own rebellion, his own sin, his own lostness. And what then naturally follows from Saul is wicked and destructive and evil. But here in chapter 19, what the writer wants us to really notice is the similarity between verses 8 and 10. He repeats the same verbs here deliberately. We don't see it in the English, but there in the Hebrew it is quite apparent. If we have a look at verse 8 and verse 10, it says this, once more war broke out and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. But when you come to verse 10, 
It says, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him. That word eluded him, it is the same verb that we found in verse 8, where it says they, they fled before him. David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That word drove the spear is the same word used there in verse 8 as he struck them. Where David had gone out to fight the Philistines, he struck them, that they fled. And what we have here is Saul treating David like an enemy, treating David like he's a Philistine. But David, he's young, he's fit, he's healthy, he has good reactions, the spear is coming, he dodges the flight path of the spear and he makes his escape home. A second deliverance recorded for us in chapter 19. But Saul knows where that home is. You see, David shares that home with his new wife, Michal, Michael, however you want to pronounce it, but Michael is Saul's own daughter. So we see next the third deliverance, and we've entitled it like this, David is saved through Michael's strange intervention. David is saved through Michael's strange intervention. Let me read verses 11 to 17. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through a window and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at their head. When Saul sent the men to capture David, Michael said, he is ill. Then Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. But when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed and at the head was some goat's hair. Saul said to Michael, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? Michael told him, he said to me, let me get away. Why should I kill you? Now, Michael's intervention was certainly life-saving. She warned her husband. She gave him good advice. She helped him escape through a window. But what's all this about taking an idol and dressing it up with goat's hair and placing it in their bed? What's she doing anyway with a household god in the first place? That was forbidden. And, and did it actually do any good? Did it actually divert Saul's men? For it would seem the first time they encountered this sleeping idol was when they broke into the bedroom. So it wasn't as if they'd given David any extra time to make good his escape. So what's it about? Well, I think the answer may lie in understanding that when Bible writers mention these idols, these would-be gods, these fertility gods, these teraphim, as they're called, it's generally to mock them and to show how absolutely useless they are. In fact, it happened on the only other occasion such an idol, a teraphim, is mentioned. We find that in Genesis 31, verses 34 to 35. Again, you'll see these words on screen. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods and put them inside her camel's saddle and was sitting on them. 
Laban searched through everything in the tent but found nothing. Rachel said to her father, don't be angry, my Lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I'm having my period. So he searched but could not find the household gods, the teraphim. And the joke here that all the contemporary readers would have got is that fertility gods were being sat on by a woman claiming to have a period. Go figure. They're useless. They're despised. And what do we know about Michael? What does it seem the writer intends us to hold on to here? Why does he mention these things? Well, I think it's the same lesson. These fertility gods are useless. They're despised. They look ridiculous with their goat toupees. For we're told this in 2 Samuel 6, verse 23. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Fertility gods, they'll deliver. No, they won't. They are absolutely useless. It's as if the writer wants to underline that deliverance only comes through God's work, not with the useless, lifeless idols that Michael was trying to manipulate. And what's more, her allegiance to useless gods is underlined by her self-serving lies. In the second part of verse 17, we're told this, Michael told him, that's Saul, her dad, he said to me, let me get away, why should I kill you? She made up a story that she'd been threatened by, by David. So, having seen how useless fake gods are to deliver, we immediately come to the fourth escape incident that underlines the opposite. The fourth incident in this chapter is that David is saved through God's overwhelming power. David is saved through God's overwhelming power. Verses 18 to 24. When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah, so he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Seku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over in Naoth at Ramah, they said. So David went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him. And he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his garments and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all that day and all that night. This is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? Look, don't worry too much about grasping all the geographical details of this account. Just get the sense of what's happening here. David flees to God's messenger and God's people who are there in Ramah. It's actually about the only place left for him to go. So when spies inform Saul of this, he sends three successive squads of soldiers to capture David. 
And what happens? God overpowers them. They can't fulfill their mission. They join in in speaking out God's word. Until at last, Saul decides that if you want a job done properly, well, you better do it yourself. So off he goes to Ramah. And the writer records, you may have noticed this in verse 23, so Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him. Even on him. And actually, it's at this point that we pick up again the imagery of someone removing their clothes, as we saw last week. It signifies when that happens that they're giving up the position and the power that's symbolized by the clothing that they're wearing. And sure enough, there in verse 24, we notice he stripped off his garments and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. You see, the murderous king is overpowered by God's overwhelming power. See, it's not Samuel who provides the protection, it's God himself. And so we see how Saul prostrates himself, powerless before Yahweh, laying down all the trappings of his power and acknowledging divine supremacy. God reigns. God would not let him touch David, the anointed king. And basically, that's what 1 Samuel 19 is about, these four escape stories that happen more or less one after the other. What are we to make of all of this? Could I suggest that three lessons emerge that we would do well to note? The first is this. Reflect on the lessons of life. Reflect on the lessons of life. You see, God was training David through his life experiences. He wanted him to know his covenant care and protection. But not just in some sort of theoretical, academic way where you read it in the book, but no, through lessons forged in the furnace of opposition and danger and persecution. And this becomes evident in various psalms that David went on to write as he reflects back over the way that God had led him. Now, I could have uh, chosen from a whole load of psalms. I've chosen just three that maybe illustrate the point how David reflects. Psalm 143, verse 5, he writes, I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works and consider what your hands have done. He's reflecting on the past and noting God's dealing with him and God's faithfulness and mercy. Or take Psalm 103, verses 2 to 4. David writes, praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. What is David doing here? He's saying, yeah, I went through that. God, you are faithful. God, you are true. I learned that lesson. Take even Psalm 23, that favorite psalm for so many of us. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. 
for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Do you see here's David reflecting on how God has led him and the many varied and differing ways that God has delivered him. Four completely different ways we've seen in chapter 19. And as a result, he's able to praise and he's able to worship and he's able to commend God's grace to others because he's seen God in action. He's experienced that covenant grace and mercy and protection in his own life. And if you were to write an account of your life, where were the places that you were most conscious of God's help and leading? Some of us here have a, a longer stretch of life to reflect on, and that book, as it were, is now a sizable tome, while others here are still writing the early chapters. But take time to think about those harder lessons that you went through. For after closer reflection, you may well see God's gracious hand teaching you some of the most valuable lessons you've ever learned about him. For me, one of those lessons came 30 years ago. Through watching my father die of cancer over a period of 18 months. I found it really hard. I love my father deeply. There were many tears. And there were many questions. And I have to confess, I found it hard to read the Bible or pray during that time. But I have never learnt as much about God as I did during that year and a half. Lessons of his love and his perfect timing. Lessons of his presence, his felt presence. Lessons of complete confidence in the power of the gospel and the truth of the resurrection. I learned lessons then that serve me well now. So how's God been teaching you? Where do you see evidences of his gracious fingerprints? For you see, there are no wasted experiences in the life of the believer. Every moment, even the toughest ones, are packed with God's loving purposes. My friends, understand this. Nothing is random. Nothing is meaningless. God is at work. Let me go on to the second lesson I think we can deduce. It's this. Let's reason from the logic of Calvary. We've reflected on the lessons of life. Let's reason from the logic of Calvary. You see, none of us here, I think, are sort of David who have been called to heroic exploits over God's enemies. And you may not have been anointed by the great prophet Samuel or any of the prophets that we may have or not have today. You may not have songs written about your life. 
But don't let that diminish for one moment your understanding of God's love and protection for you. Jesus Christ died for you, my Christian friend, and that changes everything. Just listen to the Apostle Paul's passionate logic in Romans chapter 8. He writes, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Verse 38, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. My friend, my Christian friend, understand this. You are a loved child of God, a loved child of God, loved as much as King David. And just as the Lord was with him, so he's with you. Just as the Lord overruled in David's life to accomplish God's purposes through him, in the same way he has his hand on you and will only take you home to glory once his purposes for you here on earth have been fulfilled. And David understood this. He understood that God is a promise-keeping covenant God. And he knew that all God's children will know his help and protection just as he had. This comes over in Psalm 34. Let me read these words to you. This poor man called. So he, he, he's illustrating this from his own experience. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. So David speaks about this in the singular for him. But then he says the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And then again, blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you holy people, you his holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. My friends, as Paul reminds us, what more can God do for you than give you Jesus. And when you're traveling through that difficult and hard experience, as some of you may be at this moment, then remember again that his covenant love towards you has never failed. If it was strong enough to take Jesus to the cross for you, my friends, then you are eternally safe. You are eternally, eternally embraced in the love and protection of God Almighty. My friends, think on him. Keep Jesus regularly in view. Argue back to yourself the logic of Calvary. As Paul said, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Christian friend, you've been given Christ. Can you be given any more? No. We can be confident. We can be sure that his love embraces us. So my final point of application is this. Respond with the language 
of faith. Respond with the language of faith. Because David wrote a psalm about these experiences that we've been looking at here in 1 Samuel 19. And, and we know it as Psalm 59. It was the psalm that Robert read earlier to us. And its predominant theme is that of the power of God. Let me again read out sections uh, for you. You will see it on screen. And as, as Robert so helpfully read, he read the introduction where it says, Of David, a miktam, when Saul had sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood. Verse 9, you are my strength. I watch for you. You, God, are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. Verse 16, but I will sing of your strength. In the morning I will sing of your love, for you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. You are my strength. I sing praise to you. You, God, are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. Prayer and praise. Prayer and praise. Here's the model for all God's children to follow prayer and praise. You see, cry out to God in prayer. That's what's happening here. David says, deliver me from my enemies, O God. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Deliver me from my evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood. For there will be times actually when that's all you can do. You cry out to him. You make your needs known. You, you share your fears with Almighty God. You express honestly how you feel. You, you call out His covenant mercies. You cry out. You pray. You just say, Lord, help me. But then you acclaim Him in praise. As David did. You, God, are my fortress, my God on whom I rely or as he says, I will sing of your strength. In the morning I will sing of your love, for you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. You are my strength. I sing praise to you. God, you are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. It's as we reflect on who God is and what he's done and what he's promised that we're able to celebrate his unfailing grace and mercy. And by doing so, we're able to encourage one another through our words. And we're able to strengthen our own hearts as we articulate His mercies. See, that's why we're here together. That's how we bless each other. And that's what we're going to do in a moment. When we sing, he will hold me fast. We will encourage one another. As we sing out truths, we will strengthen our hearts as we remind ourselves of his grace. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to learn the lessons. Father, thank you that in your grace and your amazing wisdom, you allowed David to go through these episodes of well, it seemed his life was going to be taken from him. But, but Lord, time after time, these four occasions in chapter 19, we see your deliverance coming through. Father, thank you. And thank you that this is what you do. You're the God who's in control of all things. 
Father, forgive us when we rely on the fake and false and useless gods of this age to provide us what we need. Thank you that we can look instead to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is the saviour who died for sinners. Thank you for that time when we came to trust him and lean hard upon him. Thank you that we found him all sufficient. And Father, we do especially pray for those here in this congregation who as yet are not trusting Jesus. Who are relying on the fake and false and phony gods. Sovereign God, please, would you just show them your love? Would you point them to Calvary? Would you show them what Jesus has done? Would you show them the glorious logic of faith, we pray? And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, He will hold me fast.
him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.